Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. This camper wrapped up for us last week our, our series in the book of Revelation where we spent the better part of the fall, or I guess all of the fall, in looking at the seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, we now move today into the Advent season with a new series that we are titling Songs of Our Savior, where we will look at songs that are found and recorded in the Scripture uh, related to the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we come to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come this morning, we do come to sing praises to you. We come to honor you, and to worship you in all that we are recognizing that all that we have comes from you. But we also come to be blessed, for that's part of what you've ordained this day for. We commit to time to studying your word, and we come to that time now. Lord, it's not our diligence that feeds us, but your grace. You have promised that your word never comes back empty. You have promised your word not only informs us by answering your quest, our questions, but it forms us that we might become more like Christ and that we might be one body. I pray, Lord, that you would be at work in accordance with your promise now as we listen for your voice and we give ourselves to your spirit, that you would do the work in us that needs to be done. That by doing that work, you would free us from whatever we have plunged ourselves back into bondage to. That you would kindle within us hope and joy that come from knowing your love as recorded for us in your word. Bless us, Lord, for we are people in need. Bless us, Lord, so that as we are blessed, we may bless those who are around us, and that we may bless your holy name all the more. We pray in Christ, the Word incarnated. Amen. The curiosity out of, in preparing for uh, this series that we're doing, that Camper and I are sharing during this Advent season, I did a Google search. I typed in, Christmas songs, hoping to find some insights, maybe some things I hadn't thought about, and came back with 55 million pages to look at. That was more than I was planning to have time for, so I refined the search a few times and narrowed it down to a mere 137,000, at which point I was vividly reminded that Christmas songs come in all varieties, all types. Some of them are fun and simple and trivial. Some of them are joyful declarations. Some of them are reflective meditations. Most of us have our favorites, with the only lament is that we only get to sing them for a short period each year, the, year, we, year, the weeks leading up to ad, uh, Christmas during the Advent season. I know there are others in our culture who are trying to expand our enjoyment of those songs, whether it's Halloween or Labor Day or whenever you can walk into a store and hear Christmas music begin to play. But it's still not the same because I imagine very few of you, even if you enjoy the songs you're hearing play, feel the need to break out in song in the department store while they're playing your favorite Christmas songs. 
once we hit this season, once December rolls around, once we gather together, we're together and we who are believers and the culture as a whole begins to recognize and observe, celebrate God's gift to us through the birth of Christ. We realize that we have the opportunity to, to sing the songs that we love but don't have opportunity to sing very often. Now, this morning, we're going to consider what may not be the most popular Christmas song, but it is the first Christmas song. It's Mary's song, sometimes known as the Magnificat. song is familiar to many of you. Others may not be as familiar with it, but this is the song that Mary sang, Mary composed, that has been recorded for us, upon the realization setting in her that God had blessed her, graced her, that she would be used in God's redemptive plan by giving birth to the promised Messiah. Now, to get a better understanding of what Mary is saying here, for us to be able to, to see more, it's helpful for us to consider uh, really the background and the context that Mary writes this song in. Mary's on her way in the beginning of, of Luke chapter 1 to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And so, as you can imagine, Mary is preparing herself and she's engaged in a three day walk, about 100 miles. Three day walk that she's engaging in, leaving her home in, in Nazareth, heading south into the hill country of, of Judah. With the words of the angel Gabriel probably very fresh in her mind, I mean, how would she forget? And she's walking all those hours, all those miles along that road, rehearsing, remembering the angel speaking to her and saying that she has been blessed, that God's favor has, been, has, has visited her. And even while the experience was so new and that she's going through that so much in her own mind, knowing that it's very real, it also had to have been very surreal. And as she's thinking about this and walking along, she had to be asking herself questions such as, could it really be true? Did God really choose me? Am I really carrying the promised Messiah, the one who would be the Savior of the whole world? Knowing in one sense that it very much was real, in another sense, seeming like it, it has to be somewhat of a dream, Mary makes her journey until she reaches the home of her cousin Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah the priest. But as soon as she arrived, when the door was opened, when Elizabeth spoke and we're told Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit, everything began to be clear because we're told in verse 42 of chapter 1, when Elizabeth opens the door, she greets her young cousin by saying, blessed are you among women. A confirmation that this couldn't have been a dream. She would have no way of knowing anything except that God had spoken to Elizabeth as well because why would you say that to some teenage girl? or to any woman for that matter. Among all of the women of the world, blessed are you as the first greeting, except that there was some understanding. And Elizabeth seems to have some understanding of the magnitude of the situation because she says in verse 43, she refers to her young cousin as mother of my Lord. So things began to crystallize immediately for Mary. Elizabeth had confirmed everything that the angel had spoken and there, as Mary realizes that what she is remembering is now being confirmed and beginning to take it all in, and she's 
emotionally overcome by the reality. Mary then breaks forth into song, the song that we have before us here, verses 46 through 55. Let's go to the Lord and, and look to that song now. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary remained with her about three months, and then returned to her home in Nazareth. As we come to this song and we look at it, we realize just by the very words that Mary introduces the song with the very opening lines of her song. That this is not just some jingle she was writing and thinking about to celebrate or even to commemorate or even to share with her child that was yet to be born. I mean, she simply is so overwhelmed that her soul is erupting in joyful, lyrical declaration. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is not language that just simply is talking about a nice experience or something that is important, fun. This is somebody who is just overcome and overwhelmed and declaring what God has done, and she's just thinking out loud, processing out loud in in this lyrical declaration. She's reminding us that the reality of the incarnation, the fact that God would become man and remain fully God and then at the same time be fully man. It's not just some theological tidbit that we need to pass on and maybe think of songs or rhymes or ways that we can remember of its significance. It's not just something that we pull out once a year like we do with our lights or our artificial trees or uh, cards or gifts that we plan to give away next year because we got them cheap right after Christmas the year before. The song is a reminder of us, of the greatness of God as seen through the the lenses of the incarnation. God coming in the flesh. And Mary, as she begins this song, reminds us of how how significant a thing that it is. What I want us to see this morning, and not just this morning, but throughout this season, I want us to be reminded that the, the incarnation of God in Christ should cause our own souls to erupt with joy. Because as Mary shows in this song, the benefits that she is experiencing are not only for herself, but for others as well, for you and for me. Because Mary in the song begins, and she's talking about my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. In one sense, she's saying, I, I do this. But she's saying it's, it's more than just I'm making a choice to do this. There's something that is compelling me. And in talking about uh, in verse 48 that the Lord has looked at her humble estate. But in verse 50, Mary says, 
and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In other words, God has blessed her in a tremendous way, but what God has blessed her with is the same blessing that all people who are humble and realize their need, and their need is greater than their ability to provide for themselves, that God has blessed them with, that God has blessed us with. Martin Lloyd-Jones expresses it this way, if we really understand what happened when the Son of God left the courts of heaven and came into the world in this way and in this manner, if we grasp something of the eternal significance of the incarnation, of its profundity, its amazing character, how can it fail to move us, especially in our souls and in our spirits? Lloyd-Jones is, again, is expressing the fact that the reality of the incarnation should cause our souls to erupt in joyful song. But the question that we need to ask if we are going to benefit and for it to kindle in us that kind of joy, the kind of joy that is an eruption and not just going through the motion because we've experienced Christmas before. We enjoy it. We know it's important. We know we want to honor God. The words are good. And we sing those. Those are the I. I choose to do that. Mary, if we are going to experience more of what Mary is experiencing, the eruption of God's work within our souls. We probably need to understand what it is about the incarnation that so moved Mary. I mean, certain things are obvious, and they're not going to be repeated, at least by us. She was pregnant. You're not, especially guys. But it's not just the pregnancy. That's not the only thing that she's talking about in this song. She's talking about what God is doing. So we need to ask ourselves, what is it about the incarnation that caused Mary to be just so amazed that her soul erupted into this joyful, God-magnifying song? My hope is that if we begin to meditate on those things, that Mary was thinking and experiencing, that something within us will also be kindled. Our souls will be stirred. We too, whether verbally or in our hearts, will be moved to sing. There's just two things that I want to look at as we characterize the song this morning, even the incarnation. There's many ways that we can look at this passage, many ways we can look at it, uh, but I want to just do it in a simple way and to look at two overarching themes that we see within this particular passage. In one sense, they are simple, but they are also profound. And the first one is this, is that the incarnation reveals God's grace. Now, I know that while you're polite, nobody's going to say it out loud, but I'm sure that there's more than one of you sitting there thinking, well, of course it does. I'm not trying to underestimate your intelligence or your knowledge, but it does something here that we may not necessarily recognize. I want you to realize, using the words that Mary speaks about, but think of the incarnation as a magnifying glass or as a microscope. That's essentially what Mary is saying. My soul magnifies the Lord. In other words, through her soul, through that lens, of, we are able to see something about the grace of God that might escape the naked eye and any other circumstances. We may know grace is a concept. We may know God that is gracious. 
We may have heard all the declarations that are made throughout all of the Old Testament. You may even be a people who experienced the, the joy of the celebration of the Passover where God's grace was poured upon his people overlooking their sins simply because they were covered by blood on a doorpost marking them as belonging to him, that he didn't take their sins into consideration. He didn't give them what they deserved. He overlooked, he passed over them, grace giving them life. As important as that is, Mary is saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. And I think that she's reminding us, or she's beginning to understand, that God's grace is seen through this unique expression in her, through her soul, in a way that we would not otherwise necessarily see or that would be easy to miss. If for nothing else, it is revealing that God's grace is a personal thing. Because she's saying, if we consider Mary herself, she's saying, this is what's happening to me. It's not just a concept. It's not just for a people. This is a personal thing. God, God's grace has come to me. God's grace comes to all, individual, collective, uh, that are humble. And if we think about Mary and who she was, we realize that she was Nobody from nowhere, just a, a poor, young, peasant girl. And yet, God was mindful of her. It's important that we also note as we're looking at this, that nowhere in this song or nowhere in the scripture does Mary exalt herself in any way, shape, or form. Mary never identifies herself with a divine. She refers to herself as one who is humble. Interestingly enough, she would not only be one who is humble, but she is one who apparently is broken, one who recognizes that she is sinful because she talks about my Savior. She wouldn't need a Savior unless she had need to be saved from something. And so when God had blessed her with this pregnancy and announced to her that she was delivering the Messiah of the world, she realized that that salvation was not just for the world and was not a concept. It was for her. Her Savior has come to her. But nowhere excuse me, does Mary exalt herself as some traditions are prone to do? She defines herself as one who is the beneficiary of God's grace, of God's mercy. She describes herself as one who is in need, one who is in need of a Savior. When we look at this passage and see some of the things how Mary describes herself, she says that God has been mindful of her humble estate. <coughs> excuse me. She realizes that she will be called blessed by all generations. Now, this is not a matter of her elevating herself and saying, see, everybody's going to see my greatness. I have made a name for myself. I will live on in everybody's minds. She just realizes God has done. Her focus of the song is not even really on herself other than as she's reflecting back what God has done. God has done a tremendous thing in her. And because of that, we might call it this way. Everybody from, all, from now on is going to say, you're the luckiest woman on earth. I mean, you've received fortune. You've received blessing. You've received benefit that you didn't earn, you didn't deserve. Mary just says, from all generations. And so not only does she have the benefit of being recognized, she realizes that everybody is always going to see her as one who received something she didn't deserve. Mary is a living definition of humility. I don't know who first offer the definition, but I think that it's appropriate one, it's, it's a good one, is that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And Mary here is considering her situation. She seems to describe herself not as just, she's not bad-mouthing herself. She's not 
complaining about her circumstances. She's not putting herself down. She's just acknowledging that she's a nobody from nowhere. And yet God, who created all things, who holds all things together, who is God of gods, king of kings, he was mindful of her. In other words, he had her in his mind. He was aware of her. He had a plan for her. He blessed her. He gave her the privilege of birthing the Savior of the world. She had been tremendously graced. Now, I want to also give a description of the difference between grace and mercy. Because I am saying that the incarnation reveals the grace of God. Mary talks regularly about mercy in this song, and grace is not a word that she's particularly using. The two of them are, are not at odds. They go together, but they are not the same. They are terms used interchangeably, but they have, there is a difference between them. Mercy might be the best described as not getting what you deserve. Some time ago, not long before we moved here, I was driving through a, on a road through a hollow in East Tennessee. I'd driven this road I don't know how many times before. It was uh, the simplest way to get from one side of a mountain to another. It was not a long road. It was a relatively narrow, but it was all straight. In this particular day, I was pulled over by a police officer who told me that I was going above the speed limit. I told him I didn't even know there was a speed limit on that road. And apparently nobody else did either that I've ever seen on that road. Nevertheless, he checked my driving record, realized this was not a pattern for me that had been some time since I had received a speeding ticket. Unfortunately, I received two more soon thereafter. But anyway, that's a... Uh, but up to that point, I was a good driver. Um, and he chose to give me mercy. He did not give me the ticket that I had deserved. I had broken the law. I had broken the standards. That's the penalty. That's what I deserve. But he chose not to give that to me. That is mercy. And while mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is greater than mercy. Because grace not only doesn't give you what you deserve, it gives you what you do not deserve. The end of that road is the road that takes from our old house to the Bristol Motor Speedway filled with rednecks and business people twice a year and all the beer you can possibly imagine. Now, if I was interested in those things, other than the festivities that surround it, it, grace would be more like this. I'm breaking the law, driving too fast through that hollow. The officer pulls me over, says, here's what you deserve, and rather than giving me a ticket, he gives me his two tickets for the upcoming race, giving me something that I had not earned, did not deserve, and frankly, probably didn't even want, but that's besides the point. Blows my whole illustration, that point. So, but it's giving something that is not deserved. And while Mary speaks of the mercy that comes because the Savior has been born to her, somebody who she understands has been born to take upon himself the sins of the world, to set the people free, to, to, in order that they might not get what we deserve, since all are sinful, and we all deserve God's judgment. She's talking about mercy she also speaks in this passage that God has done great things for her. In other words, he doesn't just allow her to play a part and so in the redemptive plan of history and therefore she will be forgiven of her sins and she will only receive mercy. She's getting stuff that she doesn't deserve. 
she says over and over again, God, he has done great things for me. Now, one thing that's important to notice in that passage is that there is a significant S there. If somebody was to say, or if Mary was to write the song and say, he has done a great thing for me, that would be obvious. I mean, we all who are committed to Christ want to be used in God's redemptive plan. If you've had the joy of sharing the gospel and seeing a family member or a friend or a neighbor or even just somebody you encountered come to faith in Christ, it is exciting to realize you are God's tool for that moment, a vessel bringing life. Mary was aware that she was giving life through actual birth, but through this actual birth, we all would have life. That would be a great thing. She says, not he has done a great thing for me, but he has done great things for me. It would be a wonderful devotional study to go through and, and just consider, and I would encourage you to consider what are some of the great things that God has done. You know, you might think of some of the simple things. She's already acknowledged from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She's got fame, which is apparently a value for people today. Yeah, better to be famed for something good or people, it's enjoyable to be recognized, at least for positive things. Gave her a child in an era when for a woman to not give birth, it was considered shameful. And the, the stereotype, the superstition of the day says God must have cursed you. You must not be a good person. Now, granted, in her case, it's a little premature. She's not yet married. She had marrying age. But at least she knew she'd live the rest of her life and not have to have that kind of scandal. She had other scandals to worry about. But I think overall what she's realizing is that there are benefits of salvation. And it's not just simply that her sins are forgiven. But there's also fellowship with God in heaven. There's also the promise of the work that he began in those who belong to him is going to be completed. And so there's a process, we call it sanctification, where she will grow more and more to understand the mind of God once he began that work in her, he's not going to leave that. There is a growth. There's an understanding of acceptance, no matter what her circumstances are. And with that comes a peace. There's a promise that, of what is to come, and a deposit has been made. See, Mary's looking at the birth of Christ, not saying, okay, well now, God's plan is beginning to unfold. Savior had to be born. Nobody knew this was going to happen, but part A, I hope I don't mess it up, and so that God's plan somehow falls apart. God, like God's people all times, understood when God says, here's what's going to happen, it means here's what's going to happen. And the fact that she was now pregnant, particularly in this miraculous way, was a reminder to her of what God had already promised, that there would be a Redeemer who was born of a virgin. God had already inaugurated this plan. It was already at work. And because it was already at work, that reminder, there's no reason to doubt that everything he planned would come to fruition. She had reason for hope. And with that reason for hope, with that reason for peace, and with that reason for significance, she also was led to joy. Again, these benefits that she received are more than just for Mary. Verse 50 is a vitally important verse. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
It's for you and for me. When we realize God is God, I am not. God is awesome and holy, and I am not. God can do whatever he wants. I cannot. But God loves me for reasons I cannot explain. And I have benefited from that because this is the promise. It's not limited to her. It's for anyone who fears him, and not even for a limited time, generation to generation, that continues on. That's our hope. When we look at the incarnation, we are reminded God reveals through the incarnation that he has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Mary's song also reveals that joy in this life is not a personality trait. Nor is it directly tied to positive circumstances in your own life, free of struggle, hardship, trials, or even anticipation of them. Joy in this life comes when we recognize and accept God's mercy for us in Jesus Christ, the grace that he's given to us. The incarnation reveals God's grace, and by looking at what God has done in the incarnation, by sending his son into this world, we are able to see characteristics of God that we would not necessarily be able to see otherwise. That's why Jesus says, look, if you want to see what God is like, look at me. God who has come in the flesh. But secondly, the incarnation also reminds us of God's power. See, Mary not only experienced God's grace, she was the beneficiary of God's strength. That's what she declares. He who is mighty has done great things for me. So it's not just acknowledging God is able, but God has done something, and he's done it for her. And again, by extension, he's done it for all. And it's interesting because Mary then moves from really talking about her own experience to begin um, to talk about how God's strength affects the entire world, particularly those who fear him, those who belong to him, but it affects everyone. And as you look through these verses, you recognize that Mary recognizes that God's going to scatter the the proud and and those who are mighty. That God resists those who are proud and wealthy, trusting in their wealth because the wealth brings power and power brings influence and the wealthy can get a lot of things done. God's apparently not impressed. Mary is saying that's no longer going to be the case. Instead, what Mary also says is going to happen is that God will exalt the humble. In other words, those who are humble and who are trusting and realizing that they have need, they can't meet for themselves, and are trusting in the provision of God, God will raise them up, and all people, not only Mary, will be recognized as having been blessed. Mary says that God will respond to those who are hungry and humble. Not the hungry who are angry and who demand to be fed, but the ones who are hungry and know that they cannot provide for themselves are willing to receive help given through love. Mary reminds us that God responds to the humble hungry with open hands. What Mary's describing here we refer to as the power of God's reversal. I don't know if theologians refer it that way, but that's what it looks like to me. Because there's a reversal. The way things are and the way things seem to be in the world right now will be changed. What is wrong will be made right. What is right will be right. God is bringing a change taking place. Now Mary, realizing the promises of God, may be thinking about 
uh, all the things that God has done in the Old Testament and applying the fulfillment of his promises, realizing that he has righted wrong before. And he has made those who are in power and seem to have it all to see for the insignificance that they really are, at least in, in God's economy of things. He gives us the proper perspective, and throughout the Old Testament, we see time, account after account after account of that very thing happening. And so Mary may have realized those things and said, okay, now we're going to see this coming in more fulfill, even, even more, because God's promise, we're, we're seeing it being birthed. While she may have had some focus on what God had done in the past, I think that even more keenly on her mind, more awareness, whether she could express it or not, is that she was moved by the view of the effects of the gospel that she was carrying. The gospel being the good news of what God would do for people who couldn't help themselves, who had alienated themselves, wandered from him, from time to time tried to take life into their own hands, only to find themselves failing or puffed up. God has said, I will restore my people. I will call a people. I will provide. I will protect. I will forgive. I will make them great. Mary, as she's carrying the promise of this gospel, no doubt has understanding that there is no separation. She did not understand. But we are able to see in reverse. There is no separation from Christmas and the cross. You know, the prophecies that said that the son would be, the child would be born also said that the child will die. And he will die for you and for me. And it's through that birth and life and death and resurrection that the change takes place. Paul explains in ways that perhaps Mary was unable to, as good as her song was, in 1 Corinthians 1, the power of the great reversal that is being born in Mary that day. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, that's us. It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I'll thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Mary saying the power of God that is made get to give birth, that which a virgin to give birth, the power of God to fulfill his promises, the power of God to make wrong right, to put things as they ought to be, is at work. Even if it seems foolish. He will exalt the humble. He will humble the proud. He will make wrong right. We look at this song and we realize that God's grace is magnified. We see it in a way that we would not otherwise see. It reveals God's grace. We see, are reminded of God's power in a very particular way. This Christmas season, our hearts and our attention turns back to the incarnation. It's not that this 
doctrine is unimportant or not discussed during other times of the year, but during these four weeks leading up to Christmas, we are prone to look at it in a different way, in a keener way, a way that reminds us of what things that we have known or reminds us of things that we might have forgotten, perhaps seeing things that we had not seen before. And while it's not something to be discarded and put up in the closet at other times, it actually can be a benefit that we have this occasion, that we can look at the incarnation in a unique way. Next week, my family and I will be going to Philadelphia to be celebrating my grandmother's 100th birthday. It's a little early, her birthday. She's actually a Christmas Eve child, so, uh, but Christmas Eve is problematic for a lot of people, and so they moved it up a few weeks the raging question from our family is, is my grandmother planning on showing up? They had a party for her last year, and she decided that she didn't want to go, so she didn't go. They've moved it to the assisted living center where she now lives to increase the odds that she will actually show up, as opposed to my aunt's farm. But she's 100 years old, and she's going to do what she wants to do. But whether she shows up to her birthday party or not, it's occasions like this where people pull out the photo albums from all corners and attics and reminisce, recounting stories of lives and what she's done and both in her life and in relationship to her children and grandchildren and some of her great-grandchildren. Whether it's my grandmother or another celebration that you may have been part of, people look at things that otherwise are not forgotten. It's not like we don't have those pictures now. It's not like we don't have memories now. But that occasion will call us to look at these things in a new way. And will kindle not just memories, but emotions. When we look at them, when we hear things that we've heard before, over again. And in the same way, during this holiday season, we are reminded by the incarnation of God's mercy and his graciousness that has moved him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's not more important now than other times, and it's not unimportant at other times. But during this season, where everything is intensified, where the, the period is set aside to honor that, my hope and my belief is that if we stop and we consider the implications of the Incarnation. Like Mary, we will realize that the Incarnation is a joyful act of God. It is a mighty act of God. And seeing it anew, or seeing it freshly, day by day, week by week, maybe even for years to come, will kindle in us a joy that I hope will erupt into song. We pray. Father, we give thanks to you for the gift of your son and the gift of song that so beautifully captures and reveals the significance. We pray that you would rekindle in us, or perhaps kindle anew for some, a joy that we so desperately want that comes not from commitment, but from yielding ourselves to seeing what you are doing in our souls. Bless us, Lord, not only in the 
benefits of the incarnation with increasing understanding that our souls may overflow in joy to you. We pray in Christ.